I'm Chris. And I'm Kylie. And this is Redefining Resilience. Where we explore what it means to build a resilient lifestyle. So you can thrive in any and every situation. All right, we're talking about emotions. Chris, you have a lot of them. No, I just feel like you just called me out there. It's a little <laughs> bit rough. We all do. <laughs> we all have emotions, so it'd be nice to understand them, I think. Yeah, or at least be able to label them. Yeah, minimum, right? Yeah. So what is an emotion? Do you want my own words or the dictionary definition? I'll give the di- dictionary definition, but you share yours first. Uh, In my own words, emotions are our response to stimulus. Uh, It's our body just processing the information we receive and running it past our internal defense mechanisms. That's actually really well said. Thank you. So the old Googler gave me the dictionary definition, and it's theorized that emotions start in the amygdala, which is part of our limbic system. And if we remember back from our Brain Basics episode, our limbic system is our threat detection. It's like our security system internally. And it determines human reaction to stimuli. So exactly what you said, Chris. And based on that reaction, there are somatic responses from our body. Or we have physical sensations that we experience as a result of the emotions. Do you have anything to comment? No. no, it just sounds like I knew what the hell I was talking about. Just reveling in that moment. I know. You did great. So one thing that I think is really important to understand about emotions, because they originate in the limbic system, we're always looking through the lens of how will this be a threat or hurt me? In every situation. So if we're encountering every situation as a scan for potential threat, we're looking through a negative lens. And if you think back to any personal examples, right, you're always thinking about what could go wrong or worst case scenario or, you know, if we go too far past reality, we can catastrophize and go down, you know, a spiral of negativity. Yeah. Especially if the emotions are based out of our limbic system. I mean, if that, if that's how it happens and that's the way it's built, it is literally built to dump you into the fight or flight response. Yeah, exactly. And fear, for example, is a response that prompts us to either fight, flight or freeze in order to protect ourselves. So if we're having an emotion that's rooted in fear, we're going to have an instinct to either kick some ass, run away, or stop dead in our tracks and play dead. (laughs) So if emotions come from this portion of the brain, it's obvious to understand that we need to uh, control them or at least understand them better. So we're not pushed into fight or flight mode. 
Yeah. So there's going to be times where we've got to override that default programming that we have in our brains. And to go a little bit further, there's eight primal or core emotions. Joy, sadness, anger, fear, happiness, disgust, trust, and anticipation. I think just to make it even simpler, I really do think that each of those eight emotions can be categorized into two main emotions, fear and joy. Because if you think about it, anticipation being a core emotion could either be fear-based or joy, right? I could anticipate a vacation and have so much joy surrounding the anticipation of that vacation. I could have a public speaking event that I'm doing and I'm a keynote and I could have fear-based anticipation if I am nervous about public speaking. I really do think that any emotions you're going to experience are either going to be rooted in fear at the core or joy at the core. So we talked about emotions, but we also have feelings and there's a difference between the two, which... I don't know if I really understood that there was an actual difference between the two up until I had to pick it apart to prep for this conversation. Yeah, because that's a big uh, gray area. Yeah. So if you think about feelings, what are feelings? Well, this is our learned response to an emotional trigger. They're more specific than the eight core emotions, or even just my two core emotions. So let's think of an example. For instance, anger. You could experience anger in the form of aggression, resentment, or frustration. All of those are more specific forms of anger. Anticipation, like we said before, you could experience anticipation in the form of excitement or anxiety. Right, So it's a little bit more detail and it has our lens overlaid on top of the emotion. So now we're thinking about all of our past experiences, all of our bias, and what's really at the, the subconscious of our brain that we don't even know exists, but... At the core, we may have some feelings that get unearthed because of a new event that feels like a similar event that we've had in the past. So like we just stated, it's a defense mechanism. Your body's comparing past experiences to your current situation so you don't get hurt is all it's trying to do. Yep. And that's where the feelings comes in. So it adds that extra layer of feelings, which is essentially your interpretation of the emotion. So if we look at these as defense mechanisms, we can understand why they exist. We can understand that they're there to help us, but we can also understand that they're not facts. We can understand that it's something that's your body's defending you against that it assumes is going to happen, but it isn't guaranteed to happen. Like I understood, I was told when I was a kid, people died at amusement parks all the time, supposedly quote unquote all the time. <laughs> so when I went to ride this roller coaster, I was fucking petrified. Because I thought, here it is. I'm the guy. I'm going to die on this roller coaster. So my previous experience with theme parks was I was told people would die. So all I could correlate, because I have no understanding of theme parks, because I'd never been to one, 
was death. So when I get on this roller coaster, I am literally petrified. I my hands are sweating like crazy. I'm sweating like crazy. I was holding on like it was going to launch me off of it, and I couldn't enjoy a single second of it because I assumed, based on my previous experience, was it was going to equal death, which wasn't true. So I had to override that and do some reality testing and show that uh, this outcome was different. Did you survive? I, you know, I'm here. So yeah, I did. I I do actually like roller coasters now. Now that you've rewritten that reality. But that's not any different than any other situation that we deal with. Because we only understand what we've experienced. Yeah. That's it. That's why whenever situations happen, it affects every single person differently because every single person has a different experience. So it it's just important to understand and give a little grace to people whenever they're dealing with things because they it's all different. So emotional bandwidths of people are completely different. Therefore, us thinking everybody's going to have the same outcome or the same response is just not true. Yeah, we interpret events based on how we feel. We remember events based on how we felt at the time of the event. That's the most interesting part of this entire conversation, and I would love for you to dig into that. <laughs> well, I mean, this wasn't really on the agenda, but we can divert. I just think it's, a, it's an awesome <laughs> point, okay? It is. Well, so in, in criminal court cases or just litigation in general, eyewitnesses are almost the, mo- the least reliable form of testimony that can be given because if somebody remembers something, it's because they had an emotion. And typically, unless it was like victim testimony, typically people who are just passerby witnesses are not going to pay attention to a lot of the details that are necessary to have an accurate eyewitness statement. And then there's so much bias that can come into it. So if, let's say, yeah, if the defendant or the accused is shown in the media at all, somebody could recognize that individual from the news and then they go in and pick them out of a lineup because they've seen them before. They might not have seen them because of their eyewitness uh, experience. experience. They see them because they saw them on the news, right? So... There's too many variables when it comes to how you remember events. You typically remember events that you had some sort of emotional reaction, right? Like, do you remember all the Christmases that you had as a kid? No, you probably remember the ones where you got a really cool toy or you got something that you really didn't want at all. Or you remember when you're putting up the tree, the feeling of Christmas time. Yeah. Like, I know when we cook... Uh, anything that has any kind of pumpkin spice to it, I am um, immediately feel warm and fuzzy inside, and I feel like it's Thanksgiving. It could be the middle of the fucking summer, and I drink a pumpkin spice latte, I want to put a scarf on. I absolutely love pumpkin spice everything because of the feeling that's associated with it. You're such a basic bitch. 100% basic bitch. <laughs> if anybody likes pumpkin spice lattes, you can suck it. Those are great. <laughs> That'll be a quote straight from Redefining Resilience. You heard it first here, people. Uh, Anyway, back on track. Yeah, I I remember one Christmas that I was like super sick. I had the stomach flu. 
So I remember that situation because I was in a place of sadness. I was sad that I was sick on Christmas. And I remember being at my aunt's sister's house. So other side of the family. But aunt's sister's house throwing up in her bathroom with like my mom holding my hair back. And it was, I don't, couldn't tell you anything else from that Christmas other than the fact that I got sick the entire time. So we remember situations based on the emotions, either highs or lows that we felt at that time, right? Go back to the two main emotions. If we felt some sort of joy or we felt some sort of uh, fear, we're going to remember those. Like the fear in that situation would have been me being afraid I was missing out on Christmas or cookies or fun because I couldn't participate in things because I was sick to my stomach. Like that would have been the feeling I had at that time, which is why it's been seared into my brain. I love all that. I love that 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 controls our reality so aggressively. Our emotions do. So because we're going down this little rabbit hole here, I think it's a good transition into why we're even talking about this in the first place. Uh, the more we went over this and as we were prepping for it, uh, I kept landing on, we need to be the observer of our emotions, not the feeler. Yep. Because once we're the feeler, we're, we're overcome by it. We're ruled by it. If we're the observer of it, which I'm not saying is something that I do uh, 100% all the time, because I definitely get absorbed by emotions. Like that one One Direction song I can't listen to because I cry like a baby. Such uh, basic bitch. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> But if we can become the observer, we can then pay homage to the emotion, understand why it's there, why it's there, uh, pay respect to it, and then move on. Well, We're a not reality by test, it. potentially, because it may not be a productive emotion for you to sit in, right? Like, if you're angry about something, it's probably not going to be best for you to sit in that feeling of anger an aggression, right? If aggression is the way this anger is coming out, that's not going to lead to productive outcomes. So that's why we have to take a step back and we have to say, okay, what, what do I want to happen here? What emotions do I want to feel at this, at this point in time? Um, can I switch my anger to something more neutral? I think that's the biggest, uh, thing that I've learned from you and going through all this is that it's the jump from uh, sad to happy is too big, but the jump from sad to neutral, neutral to okay is a lot easier. Yeah. Therefore the mind isn't doing a bunch of gymnastics to make it there. So you just uh, kind of nestle into the feeling that's a little bit above it. Yep. You just move, shoulder your way into it. It's not like you're having to make a leap. Yeah. So Haley and I were just talking about this earlier today. Haley's a friend of mine. And we were talking about how if we're being really self-critical because Haley and I work out together. And so it's easy for us to slip into this place of, oh, I, I feel fat. Or maybe we have a friend who always says, oh, I've gained so much weight. I feel so fat or I am not very strong. I can't really lift that much. The more we pick ourselves apart, the less motivated we're going to be to take productive action. 
So that's why it's critical for us. If we're, if Haley and I are in the gym together and one of us is talking bad to ourselves, it's imperative that we both catch it. Or if we bring other friends into the mix, we catch it and we say, Hey, that's not a productive talk track. So how can you rewrite that? And you're not going to go from, Oh, I feel so fat to I am beautiful. Like, I think it's kind of bullshit when people say, Oh, you should tell yourself you're beautiful every day. Well, you're not going to trick your brain into believing a lie, right? So we can't go from one extreme to another thinking we're going to eventually get our brain on board. That's not how our brain works. It's it's trying to fit whatever you're saying into our current existing beliefs. And so one belief we can we can accept is something that's more neutral, right? And I always go to reality. So if I don't like the way I look, I'm not going to continue to say, oh, I feel fat or I look fat. I'm going to say, I'm working on my fitness. Get it, girl. I'm getting in shape. Right? That Fergie song. About to get working snatched. On my fitness. Oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we can, we can bring these emotions and the feelings that come from the emotions into our conscious mind by, like you said, being the observer, not the thinker. Because our brain will come up with all sorts of stories. We are not the thoughts that we have in our brain. That's not our true personality. Those are just random thoughts that are strung together by this machine in our head. Now, we get to decide if those thoughts have merit. We get to discern whether or not we want to keep those thoughts or we want to have different thoughts. Well, that's what separates us from the animal kingdom, right? Yeah. Like dogs and other animals Especially have a... Dogs. I know they're horrible. Oh, uh, a, they don't have a ability to say, if I do this, I'll get a mediocre outcome it's feed me, pet me, sleep, go to the bathroom. It is very systematic. It's very structured. There's no in-between. My teabag bag just fell on my face. I spilled tea all over me. You just teabagged yourself? I just teabagged myself. <laughs> well done. So what does it mean to be the observer of our feelings? Well, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's backtrack. Let's let's back the truck up just one minute. Because if you think about it, the emotion prompts us to think of thoughts around the emotion. Once we start swirling in thoughts with the emotions, we get the feelings. Yeah. Right? So if we can rewrite the thoughts, we can then rewrite the feelings. The model is that you want to remember, and I'd write this down so that you can reference it again because you're going to want to rewrite your thoughts at some point, right? So the model is we have some sort of stimulus or event. There's some sort of information that we take in. Then we have an emotion as a response to the event. Then we mix in thoughts about the emotion. And we get feelings. From the feelings, we experience behaviors. We take action and we do something. So let's think of an example for this. So the stimulus is 
Um, let's say I wake up on a Saturday morning and I have nothing planned, so I tell myself I'm bored. The event is I have nothing planned, right? There's nothing on my calendar. There's nothing for me to do right now. I have nothing to occupy my time. So the emotion I might have felt in that is sadness, maybe. I'm lonely. And from there, I might say, well, I'll just eat because I'm bored. I might not be hungry, but if that is a response that I usually take when I'm bored, I may reach for the fridge or go to my snack cabinet. So what happened in that sequence was we had the event of not having plans. We had the emotion of, let's say, sadness. And then that prompts us to talk, think through, well, I'm single. I have no boyfriend. I don't have kids yet to take care of. All I have is my dog and my dog is still sleeping. I'm so really I'm bored, sad. so I'm going to eat. I'm really sad and I'm really lonely, so I'm going to eat. Yeah. Now, let's say that is your coping mechanism for loneliness, and you repeat that over the course of 20 years. You're not going to be where you want to be physically. You're probably going to have multiple pets. <laughs> and uh, you're not going to break that cycle. In fact, it's going to get worse and more intense. Yeah. Because you're going to try to keep the same... Uh, endorphin rush from the stimulus as you had at the beginning. So uh, a gummy bear is now going to be a pizza. And that happens fast because you can't, like everything in life, keep the same level and your your body will get used to it. Yeah. Um, That's with everything. That's why people will say, well, I don't remember when I had a beer for the first time. I had one and it felt loopy. And you're talking to them and they're 25 deep. It's like, that happens. That's normal. It, every stimulus in life will will blow up like that, will change. Yeah. So you have to think about whether or not those emotions are leading to a productive place. So the option you have to rewrite that story in your head, instead of thinking, I have no plans, I'm lonely, I have nothing to do, you could think, how cool, I have total freedom to do whatever I want with my time. What's one thing that I'm I'm excited to try? I could try something new today, right? Lots of other options for how you could flip that switch. Yeah. Into a productive emotion. You could then say, okay, you know what? Instead of feeling sad, I'm going to choose the emotion of anticipation. And I'm going to have a jar of ideas I did this once. I actually put a bunch of things that I could do with my time and I wrote them on little post-its and I put it in a jar so that whenever I was bored, I could go to my jar, draw a a paper and it would tell me what to do that day because I had, I mean, this might be a real story. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) So, so I did that. So instead I found productive ways to occupy my time. 
Uh, then I got into paint by numbers and I'd paint all the time. And then I started like dog walking on the Monon. So there's lots of things that I could do as an alternative to going to the fridge and just eating crap that I don't need to be eating. Yeah. So I think all this comes down to uh, being intentional with your time. You have to understand that there are processes happening in your body that are there without you trying or working for them to be there. There, uh, There are processes inside of your system that are involuntary. And if these emotions come in and you don't pay attention to them and these, these thought or talk tracks and thoughts hit your noggin that you're not paying attention to and you're not asking yourself if they're productive and you're not intentional about how you spend your time, you're going to end up down this rabbit hole of an existence you didn't even pick for yourself, but you allowed your emotions to rule and dictate your life and you'll end up somewhere you didn't even would have never planned on or never thought you'd be in. We see it all the time with uh, people we work with. Well, I don't understand how I've I've gained weight this much or this much weight, or I don't understand how uh, I'm this weak now, or that I'm at this point in my job. I would have never picked this. Well, of course you didn't pick that. You also spent little to no time understanding that your daily actions snowball into this direction, and. The whole concept to this entire podcast is becoming more intentional and taking personal responsibility for you because you're the only person that's going to save you. So if you're intentional about your emotions, you're intentional about the feelings going through your body and the thoughts and the talk tracks and the direction that you're headed and every action has an outcome uh, that you're in control of, you're going to have a much more uh, vibrant life. You're going to get to the places you want to go and do the things you want to do. You're going to have a jar of ideas of cool shit to do. And you'll end up (laughs) painting these pictures of dogs that'll hang around forever. Like that's really cool. I did do that. (laughs) As opposed to the opposite, which puts you in a position that never changes, never grows, doesn't develop because there's only two pathways in life. There's anabolic or catabolic. There's growth or death. And there is no such thing as maintenance. So you cannot be the same person you were at the beginning of the day at the end of the day. So if everything is growth or death or dying, plus or minus is probably an easier way to say it. (laughs) And they're all small percentages every day. Just make that small percentage in a positive way. Yeah. Because it'll snowball into greater things, better things. As opposed to not taking any responsibility for it, letting it happen, letting the emotions rule you, and then you end up down this road you never thought you'd be in. Yeah. I went to a workshop with Abraham Hicks, who talks a lot about manifestation, and she talks a whole lot about her thoughts and words. And... She always makes it so simple. And she's like, if you feel sad and you don't want to continue feeling sad, stop feeling sad. It's like, well, that's super simple when you say it like that, right? It's because we're thinking sad thoughts, we're feeling sad feelings, and we have the root of sadness as our emotion in that situation. So we have to, at some point, choose a different option. Otherwise, we're going to stay stuck in that feeling that we don't want to stay stuck in. 
So one of the funniest things I think about having little girls is that when they get upset, all they want to do is listen to music that makes them more upset. <laughs> they want to just like revel in the the upsetness and then the sadness or the anger or whatever it is. They just want to like be neck deep in it. You mean Taylor Swift? And Olivia Rodriguez or whatever her name is, <laughs> Rodrigo. Yeah. That is some of the saddest music I've ever heard. But if one of them is upset, it's like that's what they attract and that's what they pull in because it validates the feeling. I think it is less acceptable for an adult to do it. And we should look at it at children as like an example of the primary reactions or primal reactions of humans. Oh, yeah. I feel upset. Therefore, I attract things that are the same energy level. If I'm upset, Olivia Rodrigo is 100% where I want to be because that woman lives in that world. Yeah. But if I'm happy, Andy Grammer lives in that world. He's an awesome dude. He makes love, some happy music. Love me some Andy Grammer. Yeah, so like you attract the energy levels that you put out. And it is pure, pure, it's 100%. It's very obvious. Yeah. It is is very, very obvious that that's what's happening. So I think this brings us to another big concept that our environment is a big influence on how we think and what we feel. Your, this includes, okay, so it's it's not just your home environment. This includes your social circles, your religion, your family, your immediate family, your extended family, if you spend time with them, and culture and society. And I want to dig into a few examples of this, and they might be slightly controversial, but I want to keep it in a neutral frame so that we can understand how this works on both sides of it. Um, so first example, let's say you are married and your spouse has an affair. How you handle that situation could very much be influenced by your church. So I think it's it's uh, a good idea to understand like the precursor, not precursor, but a little bit of understanding about humans and interactions and emotions and, and, and constructs inside of humans before we dig down these roads. You are only the byproduct of the things you allow in your life that hold value based on the things that hold value for the people in your life. So like... My parents hold value in Christianity. It holds value to me because it holds value to them. Right. So you were given a lot of those value systems. Yes. So there is not anything on this planet that is uh, individually uh, held as valuable that doesn't affect value for other people. So we're all just byproducts of like the things around us. We're the nature nurture thing where we grow up and have our value systems based on the people that we value. Sounds like a Ponzi scheme. Well, it's just, no it's normal. Like that's life, right? Yeah. So uh, the greatest example of this is what do we think uh, about somebody that chops somebody's arm off? It would be so awful if I pulled you to the side, chopped your arm off. 
I'd go to jail. I'd be all over the news. <laughs> yeah. It'd be the worst thing ever. If you live in Africa, it's normal in some parts of that world to get your arm chopped off. It, in some other portions of the world, if you steal, you get your hand cut off. Yeah. That is so outlandish to Western culture, but it's not outlandish to other cultures. That value system is completely different over there. Right. That's why, I mean, again, I want to go back to like the infidelity example with churches because in some religions, you can have multiple wives if you're a man. Yeah. Polygamy is is totally acceptable in some religious cultures. Not only acceptable, it is, I mean, they want you to That's be that the norm. Way. Yeah. It's weird if you don't. Yeah. And I mean, you can see it all throughout our history, even just from like body types that are normalized. And, um, you know, when my grandparents were young, I just remember seeing these like tight little waists and everybody was skinny. And then, you know, came like the Victoria's Secret era where, you know, you wanted to look like a model and have, I mean, they were all pretty top heavy, if I remember correctly. Back it was big I, boobs, no butt. Yeah, big yeah. boobs, no butt. Now it's no boobs. Who cares about those? We just want to have big booty. Everybody's doing everything to get a big butt, right? And so even from like a societal perspective, things are shifting in how we perceive What's hot? Well, that's not even, that's not like a huge multi-generational change either. That's not like 300 years ago. That no, was important. Like three generations. That was last generation was yeah. different than, I mean, our generation yeah. from 30, almost 38 was the Victoria's Secret model when yeah. I was in high school. That was, that was the uh, measure of beauty. Yeah. You know, now it's completely different. Another example, um, let's say... In college, it's very normal to drink alcohol. I mean, I can tell you, I went to IU and I can't recall a single person who didn't drink alcohol. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have been friends with them if they did. Uh, everyone drank. That was the norm. I fast forward to my current present day. I don't really hang out with a whole lot of people who drink anymore because my I've changed my environment. I've changed my personal decision to drink or not drink. And so my environment has changed and is a reflection of that. I think it matters a lot who you're with. I, we had a friend um, who we met up with out and about one night and I saw he was drinking with his buddy and then we went to a different bar together and his buddy wasn't there and he switched to water because Chris and I were drinking water. So he stopped drinking alcohol because his environment changed. We are so susceptible to pressures from society and our environment. Another example, um, when COVID hit, there was there were countless media campaigns telling everybody to go get a vaccine. Again, that was another way our environment affected our decisions. If they hadn't advertised the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine, and people were just made available, like it was just 
CVS just added this vaccine to their list of vaccines or something. And, you know, it was there. It's like a flu shot. Nobody talks about it. It would have been completely different. It would have been totally different, right? But it was because there were so many media campaigns that it became normal to go get this vaccine. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show you that anybody with the understanding of how the noggin works can manipulate it pretty easily. The emotional connection in sales is real. If I can make you think that you're missing out or there's FOMO or, I mean, when I worked in, in sales, it was all created FOMO. I wanted you to be, feel. I wanted you to feel like you were missing out every single time I went out to dinner. I went out to lunch with somebody. I wanted you to think you were missing out because you weren't there because then I generated more income for the business. I was good at it. Wanted We, we were strictly operating on the basis of emotional uh, connections to what we were doing. And I knew if we could invite the emotional connection, we would win. Yeah. I tell my sales folks all the time that there's really only two emotions that you're selling to. You're selling to fear or you're selling to joy. You're selling based on the fear of missing out or the consequences if they don't do business with you. And you're selling on the joy of what a great outcome we can achieve together or the benefits of doing business together, yeah. right? They're, they're, th- those are the only two options, really. Those are the only two um, places people make change decisions. It's the only two real emotions that we have if you buy into what I'm telling you. But I think we have to just use discernment and reality testing. We talked about reality testing in our EQ episode, and we have to be able to use reality testing and discernment to sort through whether or not, one, we've got the right environment to support positive thoughts, right? If you've got that negative coworker who's constantly bitching about the boss or about the work or about one more thing that they've added to my plate, Like, Karen is not giving you productive emotions. She does not have productive feelings right now. And if you get too involved with what Karen's saying about her dissatisfaction with the job, pretty soon she's going to rub off on you. So we have to be so careful about who we let into our environment and what information we let in. I said this in a previous episode. I'll say it again. What you consume consumes you. Right. So the thoughts, the feelings, the words that are coming from other people, my family, my friends, the media, the church, yada, yada, are going to shape how I interpret reality. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to be taking in so much information from other people and not using my own discernment or my own thoughts to filter in information. Here's an interesting exercise you can, uh, Use in your everyday life or utilize however you want. Look at all the stimuluses you've had in your life that are the most consistent. Church, friends, family, movies, music. Those are the things you're going to base your emotional reactions on because they're the only things that are consistent enough to give your brain information to fall back on. So the one of the funniest things I've seen the older I get is 
friend groups or family members of mine that have decided something was the best thing and stopped learning things outside of that one thing. The crazy thing about it is every single outcome is everything different than their viewpoint is wrong. Well, it's important because I think understanding that not growing your information base really fucks you. Yeah. Like you don't have knowledge to fall back on outside of the one thing you continuously dig into. And it's dangerous because you don't have enough information to fall back on to make logical decisions when something outside of your norm presents itself. Because it affects your emotional outcome, your emotional response. If my emotions are, this is the only way to live, when I'm presented with something out of left field, it's immediately wrong and evil and should not be in my life. And it gives you a heightened emotional response because it's so crazy that you have nothing to compare it to. And if you understand that life is really big and there's a lot of people and you should learn things and experience things and talk to different people and be around different people and experience different things you'll have a bigger bandwidth to not have as heightened of an emotional response when something's really, really weird or something different happens. If you go deep south, deep, deep south, and like when I went to high school, you had segregated classes. They weren't supposed to be, but they were. And when you put, you mixed those classes, it blew up. It was like a super weird because we didn't do that from the beginning. It's just way out of the norm. And it's only out of the norm because you don't have those experiences. And I think it's interesting to see heightened emotional responses based on limited experience as opposed to heightened emotional responses because you think you're going to hurt, you know, or like normal responses. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but I thought it was interesting. If we don't get enough information... If our brain doesn't have all the details, it will use shortcuts to fill in best guesses. So that's where we make a lot of assumptions or inferences or um, we immediately go to a similar situation, although it may have a lot of differences, but we go to what's familiar and we start to fill in the gaps. So if you think about you know, let's say you're dating and you have a great date and then the guy doesn't call. I don't know what female is not making up 10,000 different stories as to why the guy hasn't called yet. Well, because that's the normal response. Right. It's the defense mechanism. So the only way to subdue the defense mechanism is to have enough experiences uh, surrounding that you can make different outcomes in your noggin. The danger is, though, if we don't have all the information and we try to fill in the blanks, we could be making some incorrect assumptions that lead to negative emotions that send us down this spiral, right? So if I'm going back to my dating situation and guy doesn't call me after a great first date, I'm immediately trying to figure out why, and then I'm running through the play the play-by-play of the entire date to think, okay, did I say something stupid? What did I do? Could it be this? Maybe he was offended by that. Or maybe he got scared away because I said this, right? You replay. It triggers a whole slew of anxiety because it's rooted in that anticipation emotion. 
And instead of me thinking of it as like, oh, this guy probably just has a life and he's like living his life. We think back to, all right, I've had lots of other dates that resulted in them not talking to me again. So that must be the situation again. That's my pattern. So we fill in gaps where we don't have enough information. And the danger in that is we could get ourselves totally worked up and feeling pretty shitty. For no reason. For no reason. So we have to be careful about how how we experience our feelings because we don't want to go down these negative spirals when we don't have all the information or when we don't know what the reality of a situation is. So I think that's one of the most interesting things with my daughters is something will happen to them. And because they're so young, they have no experiences in life to have them understand there might be a different outcome other than the guy didn't call me back. Like with my oldest daughter, like, oh, he didn't call me back. Well, baby, you're 16. He's, he might be in school right now. <laughs> you know, he might not have the ability to send a bunch of texts like you do in the middle of school. So <laughs> chill out, wait till four o'clock, you know, or maybe he has a job after this. Being 16, she's only had two jobs and she just got her second job. Like these are, life is is moving faster and faster and faster and she's trying to keep up with it. And her brain only has the experiences of just turning 16 and below, which yeah. give her no guidance and no light on the future ahead. Right. That's why being the observer of the emotion is better than being the feeler of it. She needs to understand that, that emotion exists and when we talk through it, 99% of the time, she understands, okay, that's kind of silly. And I think the important part is that when she feels those feelings, that she's able to productively work through them. So we've gone through a lot here. So why should we care about emotions? Why are they important? Because we've talked a lot about like why they're not or like why we should curb them. But why are they actually important? It's important because... Unacknowledged emotions and trauma can lead to substance abuse, anxiety, depression, other mental and physical health issues. It becomes chronic stress. If it is negative emotions over a long period of time and it's recurring. Because the danger is if, if our 16-year-old daughter starts thinking about, you know, boys not texting her back and immediately starts to create these stress responses to that situation. Every time it happens in her dating life into adulthood, she's going to have the same response. Now, if we teach her how to have a different response, she's not going to really stress out about it when she gets older because she's built a productive pathway in her brain to take when those types of situations happen. Now, the trouble is we did not know as much about the brain and emotions as we do now. Which is why we started this podcast in the first place is to give everybody resources because they didn't teach us this shit in school. And we say we, not being her and I, we mean literally everybody before what, 1995 and before? That's when like neuroscience was Yeah, I mean coming out. All of this is is very new-ish information. We have more we have more info on this 
now than we ever have in the past. And it's up to us to use it and apply it. So if we want to reduce the impact that negative emotions has on our lives, we have to start dealing with the negative emotion we've already experienced. So if we move to like recommendations that we might give you, one, go to therapy. If you feel like you have a lot of negative emotions that you've experienced or haven't really dealt with, you stuffed them in a bottle and put that emotional bottle on a shelf, you probably need to go talk to somebody and deal with it because those negative emotions are going to come back and they're going to lash out and you're not going to know when it's going to happen. And not to mention carrying around the emotional stress and trauma that you might have experienced years before takes a toll on your body. So it's like walking around uh, in heightened fight or flight mode. It's not like that. It is. And you can only be under that much stress or even a little bit of stress for that extended amount of time before it takes a toll. And the toll turns into heart disease. It turns into cancers. It turns into a myriad of different things. Burnout, exhaustion, fatigue, depression. The biggest issue is it affects the people in the relationships that you have in a negative way. If I can't process emotions from my past, my ability to be a good uh, companion to you is, is very, very, is, is wounded because I can't deal with carrying the emotions of our relationship with the emotions from my past. It's just not the way that works. You can only handle so much stimulus before uh, things start to break down. Yep. So a few other ideas that we have for you on how to handle emotions The ABCDEs exercise that we went through in a previous episode is a really great way to dive into why you're feeling the way you feel. So what can we do to acknowledge our feelings? And as Chris said, be the observer, not the thinker of your thoughts and feelings. Reality testing and reappraisal are two other skills that we're going to teach you in following episodes. So stay tuned for that. Come back for more. Already talked about seeking help. Go talk to a professional. There are lots of different types of therapists out there, and I've experienced quite a few of them. I have experienced quantum energy healing. I've experienced Reiki healing. I have gone to a hypnotist. I mean, all sorts in regular traditional talk therapy. So I like to have different resources in my back pocket depending on the situation, but it's a way to learn how to communicate and process your emotions just by talking them out. I just think there's negative stigma, especially for men, to start talking about it. I think we've done ourselves a disservice as men. We've decided that it is not masculine to walk through or talk about things. Biggest issue we're doing to ourselves is we're not able to label those emotions, so we don't know how to communicate. If we don't know how to communicate, we can't move forward. It is not A beta male thing to go to a therapist is very alpha. It's very (laughs) alpha because what you're doing is you're preparing your body, mind, soul, and heart to move on, to be better. You can't be better if you don't deal with the stuff from the past. I think of it as a backpack and the more negative emotions you experience, you're just piling shit into your backpack. And before you know it, that backpack gets pretty heavy. 
And at some point, you got to unload the backpack. That's what therapists are there to help you do. Um, Other thing you can do is just accept your feelings. And one thing you can also do to uh, validate your feelings is leverage data. There are so many cool technology tools out there to help give you data. You know, your Apple phones have a health app that tracks a lot of your vital signs. I wear an aura ring and I used to wear a whoop. So I have multiple different types of, of heart rate tracking that I've leveraged in the past to help me understand, am I getting enough sleep? Because a lot of times I can get emotional because I'm really freaking tired. So I want to know if I'm having a cranky day and let's say my sleep score is really poor, I can just chalk it up to, okay, I was really tired today. I need to go to bed early and prioritize my rest because I need it. And you can't make decisions that are going to equal great outcomes without data. You just can't. It's not possible. You can't fly by the seat of your pants emotionally and make decisions based on emotions and get anywhere because it's going to be too... You're you're just going to be blown whichever the way the wind goes, you know? Yeah. The data is going to allow you to say, I didn't sleep enough last night or I didn't eat enough yesterday or I haven't been to the gym um, or just asking yourself at the end of the day, am I happy today? And write down some notes. What did I do to make me happy today? Yeah. And just start repeating those two or three little things. You're giving yourself data points. And then... Breathing, doing some mindfulness work is hugely beneficial, helps you, again, observe your thoughts and really slow down to the point where you can actually see the thoughts that you're thinking and decide for yourself if you want to continue thinking those thoughts. But ideas for that, just breath work is really good. If you can just take five deep breaths, it's like a reset for your brain. So just breathing meditation, yoga, and just relaxing, doing something that relaxes you, whether that's knitting or playing golf. I don't care. Just do something that relaxes you um, to get into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest mode. And the last thing that you can do to help with your emotions is just to talk about them right? That means if you're frustrated with your spouse, go have a conversation with them. Go talk to them. If you're frustrated with your kid, talk to them. I could not stand up and clap or say how much that means to me. That whole concept. Just talk to the motherfucker. (laughs) If you're mad, talk to him. There's all this science behind holding hands. If you're frustrated with your partner, if you hold their hand, it changes your ability uh, to see them in a, a positive light. That's why you always hold my hand. Oh, yeah. I just got to – it's so hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I never get mad at you. <laughs> I know. I never get mad at you. No, but it's communication, right? That's where it goes back to therapy. That's where it goes back to the feelings of emotions. That The more you can talk about it, the more you can work through it, that's why this podcast in and of itself is super beneficial to me because we're talking about it. Yep. We get to work through these things and, and figure <laughs> out what's going on. So stay tuned for another episode of Kylie and Chris's therapy session. <laughs> oh, I love it. I cry a little bit. It's fine. Sorry about it. On that note, we'll catch you later.
Just a reminder, we are in the composure domain and we're still focused on emotional awareness. And composure is your ability to stay calm and in control when facing stress or adversity. It helps you recognize and understand emotional reactions and allows you to respond quickly to regain your composure. Thanks for listening to Redefining Resilience. To learn more about building your mental and physical readiness, check out odysseyresilience.org. And follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok.